Hello, this is Steve Robinson, and welcome to another in a series of podcasts from Sadie Records. And we do a podcast every time Sadie has a new release. Sadie, the record label from Chicago. You can find all about Sadie at their website, sadierecords.org. And that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, sadierecords.org. And we're joined by the president of Sadie Records, Jim Ginsburg. And we're very delighted to be talking about this new release called Voices of Defiance, and it features the Dover Quartet. The members of the quartet are Joel Link violin, Brian Lee violin, Milena Pajaro van der Stadt viola, and Camden Shaw cello. And the repertoire on this wonderful CD, Voices of Defiance, there are three compositions the String Quartet Number no. Three by Victor Ullmann, the String Quartet Number no. Two by Dmitry Shostakovich, and the String Quartet Number no. Three by Simon Locks. We're delighted to have with us in the studio Camden, the cellist, to talk about this moving and touching and powerful album called Voices of Defiance. Camden, welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us a bit about the concept for this album and where it came from, how it originated. Well, we had recorded our first album not even a year before the recording sessions for this album, and it was all Mozart. It was the final two Mozart quartets and the C minor viola quintet. And we wanted the first album to be in tribute to the Guarneri Quartet. In fact, it's entitled Tribute because the Guarneri Quartet was a tremendous influence on us musically. We've had a lot of major influences in our lives, but the Guarneri Quartet was a quartet that we all had looked up to and ended up studying with most of the members, actually, both in private and also having them coach the quartet. So we really wanted to show how much they'd meant to us and how much respect we had for their work by deciding to follow in their footsteps, at least for the first album. We tied that album together then by playing with Michael Tree, the violist of the Guarneri Quartet, for the final work for the quintet. Although we play a lot of Mozart, and it's certainly central in our love and in our practice as a quartet, we knew we wanted our second album to contrast the first in repertoire, and so we decided to do 20th century music. And it emanated from wanting to record Shostakovich's second string quartet, which is, I believe, his second to longest work, the only one longer being his last string quartet, which is a collection of slow movements, so a very different structure. For Shostakovich, this second quartet is a really epic piece in nature, and we knew we wanted to record it. When we started thinking about what to put on the album with it, it occurred to us to do other pieces from the same moment in history. That quartet was written in 1944, and we'd been touring quite a lot with the Victor Ullmann Quartet Number no. 3. Ullmann was a composer who worked a lot in Theresen or Theresenstadt during the war, this concentration camp that was sort of a propaganda camp where the Nazis allowed the Red Cross to enter and see that they were not treating people so badly. It was the only concentration camp where people were able to keep their hair, for instance. They didn't have shaved heads. So Ullmann lived there for a couple of years and worked there along with many other amazing artists who were then ultimately almost all transferred to Auschwitz and gassed right away. So Ullmann's story is a very tragic one. In his quartet, he wrote while he was interned in Theresienstadt, and the manuscript for it barely survived. In fact, the only reason we have it at all, have this piece, is that we have photographs of the manuscript, which was written on scraps of paper that he found at the camp. He entrusted these scraps of paper to a friend who was staying behind when he was being shipped off to Auschwitz. So it's a tragic story behind the piece, and the piece is a very powerful one. So we'd been touring with that Ullman Quartet also for about half a year, and it gets a very strong reaction from the audience, as it should. It's a powerful piece. And because it was written in 1943, right before the Shostakovich, it seemed like the two of them were already going to be on an album together if we could find a, a good third work to match. And after a lot of these concerts playing the Ullman, it seemed like there was always someone in every audience who was very familiar with the Ullman, very passionate about the piece. And someone would always come up and say, have you heard this quartet by Simon Locks, which was written in 1945? And none of us had heard the piece. It was very hard to track down, actually. But after hearing this recommended to us several times, it must have been 10 times on separate occasions, we did a little digging and found a recording of the slow movement on YouTube. <laughs> and 
listen to that and the slow movement alone was so powerful and so perfect for this combination of pieces that we decided to record the locks without even knowing what the other three movements sounded like. So at that point, we knew that we had these three pieces from 1943, 44, and 45 back to back and that they would work tremendously well together. The Locks and the Ullman are tragically connected in other ways, too. Uh, Locks wrote his quartet right after the war ended, and he had been in Auschwitz for two and a half years and survived by becoming the orchestra director, which there was actually an orchestra at Auschwitz, and they had to play as their friends and family marched off to work each day. So it was a very perverse situation, and Locks wrote a fairly controversial memoir of his experiences there, which is very, very disturbing. And the whole quartet read it before making the recording. So anyway, that's the full story of how it happened. But started with the Shostakovich. And then when we decided to go with the Ullman, it became clear we needed a World War II album. And the locks really perfectly complements the other two pieces. Camden, how did this recording happen to be recorded uh, in Canada? The quartet won the Banff International String Quartet Competition in 2013, and that competition carries with it a large number of benefits aside from just the notoriety, which is considerable for that competition and comes with some touring and also comes with a recording project. And so for this recording, we decided to record at the Banff Center for the Arts and Creativity For those who don't know, Banff is in Alberta, Canada, at the height of the Northern Rockies. Yep. And it was a wonderful experience. A great production team, great engineer, really the perfect place to have some solitude in the mountains and think about some of these more emotional topics that occur in this album. Camden, we're going to hear an excerpt from this quartet by Victor Ullmann, and you talked a bit about how the piece survived on scraps of paper. How did the quartet come across it? Well, the Ullman Quartet is becoming more and more well-known and in Europe is a very commonly performed work now, partly because of its history, but also simply because it's great music. It was recommended to us by a few friends, again, people who already were familiar with the music, and when enough people mention something to us, we definitely uh, have a listen, have a look. It's a remarkable piece and carries with it some very interesting stylistic choices and compositional techniques that are fairly unique to Ullman. So Ullman uses an interesting balance of 12-tone writing with more impressionist and ultra-romantic harmony. So at the turn of the 20th century, Arnold Schoenberg was experimenting with true 12-tone composition, sometimes serialist, meaning that you could only use a note again after you'd gone through the 11 other tones that were available. And eventually some serialists even serialized dynamics and emotions and things like that. It got very advanced, this idea of working through every chromatic possibility before returning to it. Ullman used some of those ideas. He'd worked with Schoenberg a little bit actually himself, and he used some of those ideas, but in a very free-spirited way. So for instance, he uses at the opening of the second movement, the melody uses 11 of the 12 chromatic tones. So it's not technically 12 tone, but he uses 11 out of 12. A tonal piece of music, quote unquote, strictly tonal, probably would use something like six uh, of the chromatic tones in a melody. So he uses 11, almost completely 12 tone, but he later harmonizes it so that it actually sounds and is tonal. So what he's doing is a little bit more like the ultra-romantic work of late Wagner or early Schoenberg, like for Clairtenacht, where there's so much chromatic density that it almost sounds 12-tone, but in fact, it's actually completely tonal. So he'll have passages like that. He also has a passage at the end of the first movement where it's a slow fugue, and the fugue subject is completely serialist 12-tone. But then when each new voice comes in, he again adds harmonies. So the fugue subject is 12-tone writing, but the harmony is not. So he had an interesting way of combining the ideas that were going on in the world of music at that time to produce a really unique and and really satisfying result, I think. The piece, as you said, is in two movements. We're going to be hearing the complete second movement. It's quite short. It's marked Allegro Vivace Poco Largamente. Jim? I was just going to ask Camden if you want to say anything in particular about the second movement and how it sums up the ideas of the quartet. Well, the second movement is very important because 
it has this sort of austere nature to it that's very strong. We can't really tell if it's strong in a positive way or if it's dark and potentially violent. But what's really significant about it is after a short playful section in the middle, the theme from the very opening of the quartet, the beginning of the first movement, it comes back but in a very different character. So if you listen to the whole quartet, you'll hear the very first bars sound almost like Debussy or Ravel. They're very, very atmospheric and smooth and incredibly exotic in flavor. It's a beautiful opening to the quartet. So he takes that same material and ends the piece with it. But instead of being suave and perfumey, <laughs> it's powerful and passionate and explosive. We have this sense of a return and a sort of sense of a bookending nature of the piece. But the character that we knew from the very opening is really changed in the last bars of the piece. So the quartet is quite short, but one of the reasons it has such a powerful effect on audiences is the sense of that symmetry, and that with that symmetry, there's a change to that opening character, that it really is triumphant. And that ties back into this idea of voices of defiance, the strength of his voice, and the triumph that we hear in it really defies what you would expect from his situation, and kind of hints at the power, the transcendent power of, of music. Wow, I was going to ask you how to possibly link this to the title, and you went right with Oh, cool. <laughs> did it all on your own. <laughs> awesome. Excellent. Well, let's listen then to the second movement, the last movement of the String Quartet Number no. 3, written while the composer was in a concentration camp, Theresienstadt, shortly before he died uh, in another camp. This is the second movement of the String Quartet Number no. 3 by Victor Ullmann, performed by the Dover Quartet on a new CD recording. That was the second and final movement of the String Quartet Number no. 3 by Victor Ullmann, composed in 1943 while Ullmann was a prisoner at the Theresienstadt concentration camp. It was performed by the Dover Quartet, and we're lucky to have Camden Shaw with us to talk about 
of this piece and the next piece, Camden, we're going to hear is the piece by Shostakovich, his second quartet, written, as the notes say, not early in his life, but actually midway through his compositional career. Camden, you wrote the notes to this album, very beautiful notes and very detailed. And there's a personal narrative that you created for the Shostakovich Quartet. Uh, How does the storyline affect your relationship with the music and your interpretation? Tell us about that. It is important for me to acknowledge that everyone has their own story that they'll feel from a great piece like this, and I certainly don't want my own to cloud any imagination or any interpretation of the work. But for me, this piece is so cinematic in nature, and the pacing is so important that it's very easy to put a story to it. I think particularly the last movement, the way that it builds up to what feels like a final battle with our protagonist is particularly visually stunning, the music. And it's almost impossible not to imagine a pretty distinctive storyline there. I think the significance of the third movement is Shostakovich's very, very tactful ability to point out the peeling veneer of society with which he had a lot of familiarity and also some great distrust of culture in a lot of ways. He'd been, of course, a victim of the USSR in many ways and was always under threat of being taken from his home and put in a camp himself. So the waltz, which we think of as this ultimate example of sophistication and elegance, this incredibly beautiful dance, Shostakovich takes that idea and makes it bizarre and perverse and much too fast to be danced by human feet. (laughs) So we get this sense that it could be a dance of the dead or it could be a dance in the nightmare of the protagonist as they're sleeping, you know, the night before the final battle. So there's a very unearthly feeling about this movement that he takes a familiar form, the waltz form, and really distorts it in an upsetting way, I think, to the listener. In fitting with the whole piece, the scope of it, I think it certainly sets us up for great anticipation because we feel that something is really wrong. And after the second movement leaves us questioning, but not necessarily uncomfortable. And the third movement makes us very uncomfortable again, which then when the main character wakes or however you want to see it for the last movement, there's already certainly a sense of impending doom, which the third movement materializes. Shostakovich writes for this movement to be played with mutes, so the instruments themselves are suppressed, which, of course, then can be taken as a metaphor for any sort of suppression. And as we try to play our way through the mutes and try to play some of the loudest writing that's in the quartet, of course, we're not able to scream out fully. So there's that sense of suppression. There's also certainly the sense, again, of this ghostly energy that the voices themselves are maybe not so real, maybe not from the living. And of course, that suppression didn't necessarily have to do with the war because it was something Shostakovich faced back home as well. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we listen to this third movement from the String Quartet Number no. 2 in A Major by Dmitry Shostakovich? It's from a brand new album on Sadie Records uh, called Voices of Defiance, and it features performances by the Dover Quartet. So let's listen now to this waltz from the String Quartet Number no. 2 by Dmitry Shostakovich.
That was the third movement of the string quartet number two, marked Waltz by Dmitry Shostakovich, and performed for us on this new release on CD called Voices of Defiance, and performed for us by the Dover Quartet. The members are Joel Link and Brian Lee Violin, Milena Pajaro Vanderstadt Viola, and Camden Shaw Cello. And we're lucky to have Camden with us in the studio today to talk about these compositions. Camden, a great deal of research went into this recording, and you wrote the program notes. What was the research project like, and how did knowing the background of these pieces in an academic way affect your approach to the performance? One of the fun and challenging aspects of interpreting music is that ultimately the most informative for a performer is knowing what the composer was feeling. So regardless of what's going on in the world at the time, of a composition, what's most informative is what's going on in that composer's personal life. Everyone's experience during a time of war can be completely different depending on where you are. The three of these people were affected in very different ways by the war. Shostakovich, by far the least directly, his struggles with oppression were with his own government. While some of his darkest days with the government were still ahead of him. He'd already been called an enemy of the state, an enemy of the people, simply because of his art, because of his music, and was already developing a fear of authority and certainly felt oppressed, at least artistically. Apparently, he would keep a bag packed always just in case he got whisked away in the middle of the night. He was certainly living a fearful existence in his own realm there. One of the reasons he suddenly started writing quartets instead of symphonies is in part because they got less attention from the authorities. Essentially, we really had to try to understand what is each person feeling at this moment, and that's where the context was important. So Shostakovich had many friends who were much more directly affected by the war and was writing a piece perhaps more in protest than the other two composers on the album, actually. He was in an artist's retreat, fairly comfortable in that sense of being in a place designed to focus on the creating of art at that time. And yet his piece perhaps has the most direct political insinuation. So that was particularly important to note. For the other two, it was really important to try to imagine again, where are they coming from? What are they feeling at this moment in their life? There's not as much known about Victor Ullman in a sense. He didn't write a memoir that we have, but the music that he wrote was so 
fantastic that in recent years he's become more of a focal point in scholastic research with regard to music. And we learned about the Theresienstadt camp and, again, this really perverse and bizarre juxtaposition. They were imprisoned, but they were treated much better than any other camp because they were being used as props, basically, to fool the Red Cross. Whether Ullmann knew that he was probably going to be killed, we can't really know for sure because at the time it probably seemed like a very stable environment. Certainly they were afraid, like anyone else in that position of already being imprisoned. His experience was probably most similar in a lot of ways to Messiaen, who was in a camp but not necessarily feeling that he was going to be worked to death or to be gassed, although I'm sure rumors of those things reached Ullmann. So his experience was going to be different from someone like Simon Locks, who worked at Auschwitz for two and a half years, saw many of his friends gassed, and wrote a memoir about it. In the case of Locks, we had a lot of personal information about what he was feeling. And what we learned from that, I think you could boil it down to two very important big ideas. One was he came out of the war with a very changed perception of what music does and whether it's a good thing. Because he had seen music used almost as a weapon in the camps that it actually could hurt people to play music, to play these happy marches as friends were going off and dying, that shocked him to his core. What also shocked him was seeing that some of the camp guards who would order these absolutely heinous things to happen were great lovers of the same music that we love today. They were lovers of Beethoven, of Brahms, and would talk to him about that, would commune with him about their love for music. That sociopathic separation of culture, refined culture, and then with this just base murder that was going on is one of the things that makes his memoir very disturbing. I think for me and my generation, reading that memoir, it really struck me. The movies that I've seen about World War II too simplistically portray the Nazis as just animals or just cruel and uh, having no feelings whatsoever. What's more accurate and much more subtle and upsetting is that these were people who had the capacity for love for their families and friendship, even with the people that they were willing to gas, and then somehow were able to subtly dehumanize certain parts of society and treat them with no regard for their human rights. And that's very, very scary. So Locke's memoir shows that clearly to a very disturbing degree. So again, he came out of the camp with two big things. One was a, a changed feeling of what music was, whether he could trust it, whether he could trust music as a power for good. And two, the second thing was that he had a thirst for music of his homeland. I think partly related to the first point. He wasn't sure about what music could do, but he thirsted for simpler times, for memories, for positive memories, of course. And he had not been allowed to hear, play, or practically think about traditional Polish music for two and a half years. So the quartet that he wrote is a homecoming in a lot of ways. We go through a huge spectrum of different emotions, but the whole quartet is based on traditional folk melodies from Poland. So for him, the experience of writing that quartet was a reconciliation of his feelings after the war. What does music do? Am I okay with what music can do? In the wrong hands by the wrong people, it can be used for evil, for bad. And so moving forward from that, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to write about my homeland and the purest, the most joyful parts of music. And actually, overwhelmingly, it's a joyful piece. The slow movement is heartbreaking and tragic. But overwhelmingly, it's a very positive look at life and at music. That, along with the chronological nature of the pieces, is why we end the album with the locks, because it's a very uplifting experience. We're going to conclude the musical portion of this podcast with a performance of the last movement of this quartet by Simon Locks. Camden, you say that the Dover Quartet had never heard of Simon Locks until you toured with the uh, Ullmann piece. That's right. What's it like to discover a great work like this. And how did you discover it? When we first found that slow movement online, which was the only movement of the locks that we could find, and again, it was on recommendation of several audience members and in independent instances, it was chilling. 
the slow movement is very different than the other movements in the quartet. And again, the quartet itself is mostly joyful, but the slow movement is not. Kind of in the ways that we talked about Ullman creatively combining different styles of composition, Locks did the same thing. He took two folk tunes and created this slow movement, which is a Barbara Daggio-level tragedy. First, he uses these themes plainly and in a lonely way, and then takes that same theme and in the middle of the movement, all four instruments are screaming out as loud as possible the theme. And it's, again, been distorted, and the harmonies have been ripped apart, I guess is one way to describe it. You have this incredible juxtaposition and combination of folk music with the advanced new style of composition. And it was really powerful. We all had chills listening to that for the first time and just knew that we had to record the piece. It's certainly a piece that does not get played enough, and we do hope that this album will change that. There is a, a Polish quartet which performs it with some regularity called the Makore Quartet, an unbelievable young string quartet. Other than that group, I don't know of anyone who's playing it very often. It does deserve to be heard a lot more. I think it's part of the responsibility of performers to not only to commission new works from living composers and to play the classics, but also to find pieces that have already been written and kind of forgotten. This piece certainly falls into that category. Well, I'm very glad you guys are being evangelists for this piece because it is a wonderful piece. Oh, you were talking about the situation of dehumanizing segments of society. It made me wonder if you think there's anything about this music, about its message that is relevant today. Certainly the passion of these composers and this music is always relevant in any context, even without the context especially in light of recent events in Charlottesville and, and elsewhere around the world, issues of intolerance hopefully will not be a forever thing with humanity. But so far, we certainly have not reached a time without intolerance. Seeing what these composers lived through, the levels of intolerance that are almost unthinkable today, and the amount that they suffered, Ullman lost his life along with millions of others just because of his religion. That's something that's very significant, obviously, at any point. For me, again, Locke's, his memoir was really important in, in showing the Nazis as more complex than just villains. The scariest thing is that we all have that capability to be kind to some and horrible to others. And if those ideas spread much like a disease, then what we're capable of to our fellow humans is just unconscionable. So somehow I think revisiting this patch of history is more important than ever, hearing that there are people who still believe in white supremacy and in anti-Semitism. We need to show what can happen if those ideas get out of control, and not that they should ever be thought of anyway, but the danger of that hatred and of not treating one another with dignity and with respect and equality is so relevant now. I hope anyone who listens to the album will get a feeling for the real tragedy of that war and for what was lost, and, and thankfully the memories that we have, that we can commune with these composers and feel what they felt is perhaps more powerful than any book you could read. For instance, listen to Ullman's spirit absolutely roar with power and to think that he was extinguished under such petty and horrible notions. It's certainly an emotional subject and, unfortunately, incredibly relevant today. We're going to introduce the fourth movement, Camden, and I was wondering, earlier you related the ending of the omen to the Voices of Defiance theme and certainly what you said about Shostakovich basically screaming through the mutes and the waltz fits that as well. We're going to hear the finale of the locks, which is just so full of the Polish folk themes that you talked about. Do you see that fitting into the theme of defiance as well? Well, I think Locke's life and his ability to prosper after what he'd been through is in itself an act of defiance. He was able to defy the immense forces of evil that would have destroyed him and destroyed, obviously, millions others like him. But he, in his life and also then in his work, defied that darkness and created such incredible beauty and life. 
And the fourth movement is a great example of that. He, at this point, had experienced, of course, things more horrible than we can really imagine. But the fourth movement, to me, again, it sounds like a homecoming. It's a sort of march that's in such an old style of harmony that it's modal. It almost sounds ancient, medieval in a way. So he's getting in touch with some sort of ancient power. Through this theme and variations, it sounds to me as though he's walking home. And of course, it doesn't have to be geographically going home, but going home in himself after what he'd been through and part of that embracing his homeland, embracing the music of his homeland. So I think he defied, you know, and this is such an amazing word in so many ways. It could mean protesting against something, but it also could be defying expectations or in defiance of its surroundings. And I think Locke's falls much into that latter idea. His music was a celebration of life, which in itself defied what we could expect from anyone who'd been through what he went through. And I think also just writing a piece immediately after Auschwitz based on Polish themes was in itself an act of defiance given that they were completely prohibited by the Germans. That's true. Well, let's listen now to the last movement of the third quartet on this album called Voices of Defiance on Sadie Records. This is the last movement of the string quartet number three by Simon Locks, performed for us by the Dover Quartet.
was the last movement of the String Quartet Number no. 3 by Simon Locks, composed in 1945 and performed for us here by the Dover Quartet on a new CD recording. It's called Voices of Defiance, and the members of the quartet are Joel Link, violin, Brian Lee, violin, Milena Pajaro van der Stadt, viola, and Camden Shaw, cello. And Camden has been our guest through this uh, new podcast about this new CD on CD, Voices of Defiance. Camden, I wanted to ask you, in the notes to this recording, you say that making the recording was an emotional experience. Now, one would think that you know, making any recording or playing any music is emotional. That's what music is all about. But what was different about making this particular recording, Voices of Defiance? I think a couple things. In a lot of ways, as performers, we're method actors in a sense. <laughs> when you are really trying to play someone's music well, you try to live in their soul, at least for the duration of that piece, and to meld with their being and what they were feeling and what they communicate through that. And considering knowing what was about to happen to Ullman, for instance, when playing his music, with that weighty knowledge, it made everything more beautiful. Life, of course, seems so precious, and everything that he felt and everything that he was communicating so valuable, so evanescent. That made it very emotional to get in touch with someone who's about to die and communicate what they were feeling uh, was very emotional for sure. There also, I think, was a sense that we wanted to do their visions justice, all three of these people, and that was emotional. They all were born into this incredibly difficult time and out of it created some of the best art that the world has seen. And so we wanted to do that justice, that vision, and that heightened emotions as well. Overall, there was a sort of compounding effect with the album, just thinking a lot about the war and reading a lot about it and getting in touch with the individual people and just touching the tip of the iceberg of what an immense event that was for humanity. It was very painful, for sure. I think we all came away from the recording experience changed in that sense, with a new connection to what had happened historically, which I think each generation gets more distant. So for us, it was a real awakening to some of that pain. It was new. Well, we hope this podcast will encourage people to seek out the full album. We've heard just three excerpts from it on this podcast, and anyone who wants to purchase this recording can do so by going to sadirecords.org, and that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. It's also available wherever downloads are available, right, Jim? Wherever downloads, CDs, on all the streaming sites, you name it, we make it available because we want as many people as possible to hear these wonderful performances and this really extraordinary music. Camden, before we let you go, wanted to ask you a bit about the residency. You are in residence at Northwestern here in Chicago. What does that entail? What's the residency all about? The quartet has a residency, yes, at Northwestern at the Beanin School of Music. And it's a wonderful part of what we do. We look forward to each visit. So the quartet is not actually based in Chicago, but we travel in very often between six and 12 times a year, depending on the year and just the way that our touring schedule is. We go visit Beanin School of Music and we coach ensembles there. So we'll coach string quartets and trios and piano trios, piano quintets, even larger, more obscure ensembles. I coached a bass quartet, four basses, <laughs> last year. And it's a wonderful thing getting to work with these incredibly gifted students and talk about music in a really idealistic way. Feeds our love of music tremendously and hopefully gets people excited about chamber music as well. They're already just doing such amazing things there, and it's a pleasure to be a part of that school. So you're part of the school. You're also very much part of the Chicago scene. You may not live here, but you're here uh, very often. What makes the classical music scene in Chicago unique to you? Oh, gosh. Chicago has so much to offer musically and so many different organizations that are, are doing amazing work. The Chicago Symphony is a world-class orchestra, and then you have a lot of chamber music being presented. We've started to get involved in Chicago just by visiting as performers. So there are chamber music series, of course, the Ravinia Festival in the summer, which is another just top-tier festival. So Chicago has so much going on. It's an inspired city musically. And I think getting involved in the school there for us it was just so satisfying. 
to sink into the community even more and to really make it our second home. We technically live in Philadelphia and New York, but we're in Chicago more than we're there. <laughs> so it really is a, a second home for us, and it's, a, it's an amazing city. Well, lastly, Camden, we're recording this in September of 2017. What's in the immediate future for the quartet? What exciting projects and touring do you have coming up in the near future? Well, some things are exciting for, for different reasons, for sure. We're playing in the small town in Oregon where I was born. That'll be really fun. I'm from Ashland, Oregon. And we're playing a concert with Edgar Meyer, the incredible bassist. We toured with him last year, and we're reconvening for one more concert with him, at least for the imminent future. And we're going to play that in Santa Fe, which is one of our favorite places to go. And then actually, on my birthday, September 23rd, we're playing a benefit concert in Charlottesville. And the proceeds of that are going to go toward the family of the woman who died in the protest there. So... We have things to look forward to on many fronts, personal things, going back to hometowns, working with great artists, and then also things that are meaningful in a different way, like this benefit concert. So there's a lot to look forward to, and that's just in September. It'll kind of keep going uh, with exciting things from there. In January, we're playing in Carnegie Hall uh, in Stern in the big auditorium for the first time as an ensemble. We're going to be accompanying Janine Jensen there, so we're looking forward to that tremendously. We're playing in the Concertgebouw Hall in Amsterdam also in January, and that's one of the halls that we've looked forward to playing in our whole career too. So it's an exciting winter season coming up actually. And of course, you get to play in the wonderful Galvin Hall at uh, Northwestern University. If anybody hasn't been there yet, it is both visually and acoustically spectacular, overlooking the lake. When's your next concert there? Our first concert this season at, at Northwestern is on October 4th. And we'll be playing Mendelssohn, Four Pieces for String Quartet, Opus 81, Bartok Quartet Number 1, and Tchaikovsky Quartet Number 1. And the other concerts on the series are in what month? The next concert we're playing there is January 26th, playing Mozart, K421, Schoenberg Quartet in D major, and Zemlinski Quartet Number no. 2. A really incredible quartet. Great program. Wonderful repertoire for that concert. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. I think we're playing similar stuff in, in Amsterdam, actually. That might even be the same program. It's cool. Well, Camden, it's been a delight talking with you about this new album on CD, Voices of Defiance. Camden is the cellist with the Dover Quartet. And you can find this album and many other albums by going to sadierecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. I've been joined by the president of Sadie Records, Jim Ginsburg. Any final thoughts, Jim? You mentioned recording the album is an emotional experience. Of course, listening to the album is an emotional experience. And the works are, well, they're all from World War II. They're just so well contrasted. And I think you're right, of course, chronologically and with the locks, but also it is the one quartet that has a positive statement at the end. So I think after so much heavy emotion, so much tragedy, it's really great to end the album that way. Yeah, on a hopeful note, it really is, yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful last movement especially, yeah. Camden, thank you very much. This concludes our podcast. I'm Steve Robinson for Sadie Records. Thanks so much for having me.